This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fokotani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Hello, Sam. How's it with you? It's going very well indeed. More than halfway so through the week. Hooray! <laughs> and who are we introducing today? We're interviewing today Malcolm McPherson, and he. Um, I first met Malcolm because he was my supervisor for my master's degree, um, and I just thought he was a, an absolutely fantastic human. And the more I got to know him, the more I realised just how amazing he is. He was formerly the mayor of Central Otago. Um, he sits on the boards, um, and he is an artist well, slash craftsman, as he would say, but an absolute artist if you have the pleasure of seeing his work. Um, he's really busy in the community as well as really busy in our community practice at Capable. Uh, and it's a real um, honour and privilege to get to talk to you today, Malcolm. Thanks for joining us. Kia ora, welcome. Good to be here. Kia ora, Malcolm. Where are you? Actually, I'm in Alexandra, which is which is the coldest and the, the hottest and the least windy and the farthest from the sea part of New Zealand. You can't get further from this than about where I am in this country. How did you end up in Alexandra? Well, it's hometown, sort of. My father went here. My grandfather walked down the valley from St. Bathans to live here and was a race man. He walked up and down hundreds of kilometres of races all over St. Otago. And so it was always hometown, although I didn't ever spend much time here as a kid. My father was a school teacher, was a return serviceman, spent four years as a prisoner of war in Germany, a bit, a bit um, footloose when he got back to New Zealand and... We, he taught in a number of schools around the South Island, none of which existed anymore. And so this was always where we headed for holidays, and it was always where the grandparents and the aunts and the gravestones and so on were, but it was never where I spent much time as a kid. So it's been hometown. We worked our way back here with a young family in 86 and have been here ever since. Here by choice, but here a bit by heritage as well. And how has your bubble life been? Well, it's interesting. Um, um, our bubble life has been mostly vicarious. We, we live sort of, sort of in a bubble anyway. I mean, we're, we're getting on, the pair of us. There's just two of us in the household. We both sort of work from home. We certainly do now. My wife's a GP and, and, and she was too old to go into the practice. So she worked from home. I work from home anyway. But we've got kids all around the world who were locked down in all sorts of different circumstances. So our our bubble experience was vicarious. We lived the bubbles of our family, and it was different. I've got a son in Florida, a daughter in The Hague, a daughter in, uh, in, in Spain. I've got a brother in London. The extended family's all north of the equator, and every, every possible variation of lockdown, from hardly any in Florida to really severe in Madrid, uh, was, was, it was, it was interesting. And, of course, with um, social media, we're, we're chatting every day. We pop up quite often on Zoom and they join in or not as it suits them. So we've, it's, been a, it's, it's changed our view quite a bit about how to live in straightened circumstances, how, you know, how you survive in circumstances like that. I mean, in, the, in Florida, they just ignored it. It's They're interesting. It. The kids are going to school in Florida. It's just bizarre, isn't it? How it's, it's it is being treated so differently in different places. And does it make sense for the people in those different places? Um, you know, that's a good question. Yes and no. It, I, I think the, the, the family in Florida are worried. Um, they've had a real battle getting, we've got a, a grandson who's school age. He's actually a, a few months older than school age and hasn't been, hasn't been out and around much because of the circumstances. They've just moved from Chicago to Florida, long story. Um, and his, his mother was anxious to get him into 
school and the school wouldn't open. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't take him to school in Florida because the teachers struck and said, no, we're not going to open our schools. You, you can be taught from home. And the notion of teaching a, an active, uh, um, inquisitive five-year-old from home uh, with a, with a two-year-old in the same household, it just it wasn't going to work. They've got him into a private school. He seems to be settling down. But it's been a, it's been a really fraught experience for that youngish family in, in the States. Whereas the, the, the older daughter and her husband in Madrid just chilled. They just went out shopping every day, one of them. They, they live in an apartment in downtown Madrid. It, was, it couldn't have been a more different experience. And my daughter's husband didn't leave the house for almost two months, didn't actually leave the house, the, the apartment, almost two months. Totally different experience. And, and, and the virus is virulent in both places, curiously. It's going to be interesting over the next few years just getting the – as countries come to terms with how different their experiences were. Yeah. Yeah, Sweden's interesting, isn't it? The, there was a lot of scoffing in the early days about the Swedish approach, which was pretty laissez-faire, just let it run and we'll live with it. Now, it seems, I haven't dug into the details over the last few days, the Swedes are starting to scoff about about back to normal, not too many people dead, if, if, there's, if there's such a thing. Um, and, and maybe the Swedish approach might, in the end, be the more sustainable. I don't, it's really interesting. And, of course, there's so many differences. People keep saying, but you can't compare Sweden with blah, 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 and you can't. But there are things you can draw from those different experiences that might give us some idea about where this is going to be in a year's time or five years' time. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have the Tuba Skinny Jazz Band, who I didn't know exist, but I've been enjoying today. Let's have Gimme Some. Good on you.
well connected to the community in Alexandra and Central Otago. How's the community doing? Well, I, I got I got smacked around the ears a bit in the early days of the lockdown by saying I didn't, there was much local leadership evident, um, in 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 the the current mayor upbraided me rightfully because I should have kept my mouth shut. But and I don't know what could have been done differently anyway. Um, no, I think I, I mean, it depends how far west you go. We occasionally venture across to Queenstown to the five mile to do some big box shopping. And and um, as soon as it was possible, we were surprised, really surprised at how busy that part of the inland central Otago still was. The car parks were full, the cafes were full, people were busting to get out and about. But it was a bit of a, a bit of a phony war, wasn't it? Because people were still being, the businesses were still being sustained by the subsidies. The real effects of the lockdown weren't being felt. I think the hard part in this part of New Zealand is going to be as we get closer to Christmas and into the new year, when all those all that support disappears and we are back on our on our uppers and having to fend for ourselves. Here in this part of Central Alexandra, the eastern part of Inland Otago, that we don't we, we haven't we don't have a tourist economy. Most people here are, are tradies and service people and teachers and lawyers and doctors and stuff and and the core of that economy hasn't been much affected so far but i still I say to everyone i talk to about this but but we're still just holding our breath that the hard part is when we've got to start breathing again and we haven't got there yet in particular breathing on each other well we're trying to avoid doing that although no one wears masks in this part of the country i don't know what it's like where you guys are but here i've i've yet to see anyone I've seen I've seen one or two people in the supermarket wearing a mask, but most people I actually stood at the door of a local supermarket, won't name the the brand, a, a few days ago, waiting for my wife to exit, and no one going in signed in with their phone or wrote their name on the bit of paper. No one. Maybe this, this, it's low risk, and people perceive the risk level here as being low. But this, I think, if we had, if we got to the stage where we had to mask up, it'd be it'd be quite difficult to get everyone to do it. We yeah. have, um, I, I noticed a lot of people using the sign-in app here in Whakatane yeah. uh, and Jack catches the public bus to school every day and everyone has to wear a mask on the bus. But outside yeah. of that, um, yeah, you, you don't see masks just in the general run of the day. But again, yeah. we, we've, we're the same as you. We've had no COVID here, so there, there just doesn't seem that um, the urgency to comply. No, I think if we had to, we would, but, it, but it's a bit worrying that, I mean, I carry my phone and I, I click onto the the the, um, the symbol in the door and make sure that it, it records my presence. But it, I can't see a lot of point of no one else's. Anyway, you're right. I, I think it's about perceptions and people. For most people in this community, I would think the virus is something that's somewhere else. I'm helping uh, Jean Ross with some research on the experiences of rural nurses during the pandemic and mm. that's caused me to go back and read the experiences of rural nurses during the Spanish flu, the um, 1918 and 1990 pandemic. And it hit rural areas real hard. And the reason it hit rural areas real hard was the the, the, the shortage of of nursing care and, and, and medical care. Yeah, because I I was peripherally involved in that as a, as a director of a general practice in Alexandra, um, seven thousand odd patients, seven thousand odd registered patients in a in a medium sized general practice, and we we the nature of that practice changed more in the ten hours before the lockdown than in the ten years before. In what way? Several orders of magnitude quicker. Well, we just had we had to shut the door. We had everyone everyone who presented for care. Had to go through a pre-assessment process, so we had we had a hut, a little shed sitting on skids outside the front door of the practice, with a nurse uh, and constant there, and no one entered the building before they were pre-assessed. And almost all of our all of our uh, consultations, which would normally have been you know fifteen minutes or whatever in a, in front of a GP, were on the phone. Now we've talked about phone phone um, triage and phone consults for a long time, and we always saw that as part of our future. It happened overnight. The nature of family medicine in this country and probably around the world is never going to be the same again. People have got accustomed to the idea that you don't need to truck in and, and spend that time talking to someone. You can get most of your questions answered, mostly satisfactorily, in, in a phone call and follow up and the, and the support mechanism around that. So the nature of family medicine is not just not just changed for this period, it's changed for forever, I think.
And from our point of view, that's really interesting. If we can provide on-the-phone care to the people in our physical catchment, why can't we provide on-the-phone care to anyone? Now, there's a, there's a disruptive thought. Why can't Maura, why can't you call us from where you are and, and ask us about your symptoms or whatever else is worrying you and your family's welfare and get a perfectly good answer from Alexandra, as good an answer from Alexandra as you would from your GP down the road? Exactly. And um, and maybe that's the future. And exactly. and I see it a lot. Like um, there was a lady I was talking to the other day here and her whanau had moved here from Auckland and she was struggling to connect with a family practice here that she felt comfortable with because she's been with the same practice forever. And yeah. it, she was finding it really tough. So she was still ringing them, even though here our doctors are heavily subsidised uh, by our PHO. But yeah. she just didn't feel, she just couldn't get the hang of it and couldn't get that same connection. And they were a family that had some pretty complicated health issues. So, yeah, and, and I, th I think you've made a very good point there, Malcolm. Yeah, and of course it's not the same, I mean, and your point's really good too. It, 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 just because it works for some doesn't mean it works for everyone and there will be a need for, for intensive hand-to-hand -hand contact in a, in, a, in, a, in a surgery room as there has been in the past. What we're seeing here is an increased need for mental health support. In fact, we're, we've qualified for the, the new, uh, down here, uh, Well South as our local funder, we've qualified for three people, um, not, not all full-time, sharing with another local practice for, for mental health care. And we're going to put some of our own resources into that as a business in the future because we see that as one of the emerging needs that, that, that has come out of for what some families has been a really stressful time and revealed new stresses and strains that weren't evident before. And we're having to adjust our practice to, to care for those sort of people in different ways, with different resources and with different funding. I wonder if an outcome will be that it's reduced some of the barriers to going to the doctor, not so much the financial ones, but just the, the inertia of getting to the doctor and making an appointment. Um, yeah. If you're having to make a phone call to make an appointment, you might as well have make a phone call to talk to someone. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there, is, there, will be, there will be access benefits because those consultations ought to be cheaper. So it ought to be possible to get the, what should I do about this cough or my kid's shouting and pointing at his ear, what should I do about that? It should be possible to get answers to those reasonably straightforward presentations on the phone satisfactorily. Um, so that yeah, I think I think access is a is potentially a benefit. We're also talking about that in our practice and in, in in primary care in this country. One of the big problems is it costs too much. We're wondering what we can do as a business, which has to survive and pay wages and rent and so on. How we can do something about access. And we're talking about setting up a trust and looking for third party funding through a, some sort of community trust. Yeah, but it's it's a world that's changing. That part of our world is changing, and I, like I said at the beginning, I don't think it'll go. Uh, I think we have to learn to live with new ways of new ways of looking after ourselves, new ways of taking care of one another, which aren't all necessarily bad. I mean, if improved access is an outcome, that's a really good outcome. Do you think that new ways of working that you're seeing in in family healthcare there, you like us work with a lot of professionals in a whole range of fields. Do you think this new ways of working is a thing that's that we're going to look back on as a as an outcome of the the pandemic time? Yeah, I do. Um, it, it's it's as you'll know. There's a lot of interesting. There's a lot of dialogue about that going on across social media. How much of this is permanent? How much of this is sustainable? How much of it's even a good thing? Uh, I I I think we'll we'll go back to the way we used to work, but not right back to the way we used. To. I, I think there will be permanent change in the way people network. There'll be permanent change. A lot of people. Can I say this without exaggerating? My impression is, listening to extended family and their work and, and life experiences, a, a lot of people who were, had got accustomed to long commutes and hours on trains and all the hassle that comes with working a long way from home have suddenly discovered that actually you don't need to do a fair chunk of that. And I think that will, that will stick. I think a lot of commuters in, urban, in the urban world, the urban west, will, will be asking themselves, do I need to get on that train five days a week? Can I just do it two days a week? Or can I not do it at all? And, and I think that'll stick. I think there will be permanent, enduring, and, and probably more sustainable and more satisfying um, work-life experiences that come out of the necessity of the lockdown and you know and all the changes around the last few months. And I think again, I think that's a good thing. I think that's that's beneficial to families. It's beneficial to individual and family welfare, economically beneficial. It's going to change the nature of inner cities. Uh, it's going to change the nature of urban transport systems. Maybe who knows how that will play out. 
but I don't think it's a transitory. And I think it's a, and the solutions that arrive are likely to be more sustainable, better for communities, better for economies. You talked about the change to commuting there. I mean, tele commuting, working from home, has been a thing for a long time. And you talked about how the, the yep. changes to, to the medical practice, you know, more, more change in, in 10 hours than in 10 years. Yeah. Why do you think we're, why do you think we need such a big disruption to actually make change? Well, I think, well, I've always thought, I've thought about this a bit because I've, I've, I've dabbled in the past, in various past lives in, in the world of managing change, you know, change management and the, the theory and practice of change management. I, I think a lot of it's to do with, with, with sort of inertia or comfort. We, we, we're creatures of habit, aren't we, by and large? And we, we can adjust to anything and we can accommodate anything. Um, and, and we find ways of conducting our lives that suit us and that are comfortable and sustainable or not. They're certainly livable, and and it's quite difficult to, to to wrench us out of those happy grooves, and you know, and, and, and that satisfactory way of getting through our life, even if the alternatives potentially are better. So I think it's a bit about inertia, about being happy with where we are, being familiar with routine, working out ways to make it work for us, whether it's a two-hour commute or walking next door to your workshop, um, and and it, it's. it's yeah, it's, I think it's it's just in our DNA to settle into routines and to be comfortable with them, and in our DNA to resist change. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nga mihi aroha nui ki a koutou, ko They're all happy to stay beautiful superstars, and I really hope that wherever you are, whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together, it's proving to be very rewarding, very fulfilling and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's perfect and here. Thank you. So I've had a wonderful day and I'm very excited, of course, to talk to you about it. I'm so grateful to have this time with you each day. It really helps me to reframe and recalibrate my experiences into a creative offering to you all. Thank you, Sam and the Blowing Bubbles team for having me. Thank you all for being born, doing your great work every day, and allowing me to share with you. Thank you. So today has really highlighted for me the importance of having some time to process and work through our feelings that come up for us and the great benefit that time and the ability to plan and conceptualize things in a calm way how much this helps us to really bring out the best in ourselves and each other and achieve what we want to collectively and this has happened for me today in two ways I was very lucky to have the opportunity to share some things that have helped me on OFM for Mental Health Awareness Week and previously in my life I've really always winged things and I've really enjoyed it and it's been part of who I am that I really like being spontaneous and improvising and responding to the people that I'm with and having that immediacy in my communication and my self-expression and having done lots of theatre and improvisation I know that it's also a very creative opportunity to tune into that infinite creative source energy and really just channel it and I really love that about education that you're constantly responding to the gifts that others are giving you but for this particular recording I needed to have everything be a certain time and I wanted to make sure I expressed exactly what I wanted to say in the most helpful way so my beautiful mother Robin McKenzie all the way over the other side of the world in St Ives in England helped me conceptualize these meditative practices and exercises these therapeutic journeys in under two minutes drawing upon our living toolkit so our breath our heart our eyes our nose and mouth our hands i forgot the ears so i have to do the ear next year but it was very exciting and it went so well so i'm so grateful so from that i've realized that it is very helpful for me actually to take the time to write things out and plan things and the other one was that beautiful harvey penfold and i had a slight intense disagreement and we had the opportunity of some time apart while we both went and did different things at the gym and during this time I was able to 
recalibrate and reconceptualize and work through my feelings and come back to him and talk with him about how I really wanted us to be functioning together on the highest level of consciousness possible and these are the ways that I think we can do that together as opposed to any blaming and being angry with him. So I really feel that today has been two big breakthroughs in terms of how to negotiate things more easily. So I really hope for you, you are getting the time that you need to work through things, to plan things, to write things out, if that's what's going to be best for you. And I really hope that if you are having difficulties and disagreements with people, that you have the opportunity to take some time to work through them and see where each other are coming from and encourage one another to work towards that highest level of being together. And I know you can do it because too today, even though it was really hard. <laughs> and I'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Malcolm McPherson in Alexandra. What do you think is the importance of having a, a positive vision? In fact, I think when you were at the the district council, the district council there went through a, a, a rebranding that was very much about a, a vision for the future. I think it stuck, hasn't it? I think it has. Do you think the, yeah. the be kind is, is a vision that might stick? Is that the vision that's going to stick for us? Is that a vision or is it a value statement? I, it, yeah, I, it, I don't know. I mean, I, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd like to think that there's something about about this nation that makes it more likely to succeed here maybe than elsewhere. And and it and it's not the obvious things. It's not that we're a long way away and there aren't many of us and, and, and that stuff. It, I don't know. I, I'd like to think so. I mean, the, the, the reference to the, the, the district council work was now done a long time ago. It was called Central Prospects, and it was the chief executive and I pretty much on our own, and we had meetings in every valley in the district. And the question we were asking ourselves then, this was in the early 2000s, um, yeah, the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, when, when for the previous decade or two, we'd been managing decline in Lando Targa. We, we didn't say that. But people used to joke that the last person out of Ranfurly should turn off the lights. And there was a bit of truth in that. And, and right across rural New Zealand, there was a bit of that. The last person out of town turned off the lights. And then around 2001, 2002, in this district and, and in significant other parts of the country, all the indicators ticked up. And they, and, they, and they went up strongly until the GFC in 2007. And our question then was, to get back to your, to your, to your, to your question, our question of ourselves was, is, do we want to be like Queenstown? What is it about this part of Otago that we want to preserve, that we want to conserve, that we want to value and put out there as things that are important to us? So we had the central prospect meetings. Out of that came the World of Difference brand that you referred to, Sam, which is still extant. It's still, it's, you still see it on buildings and letterheads and the CODC, CODC District Council still has someone whose job is brand ambassador. And, and that's endured, and, and it's it's a valued basis. It's not a logo, it's not a symbol, it's a series of value. And if you want to use that particular story, you have to sign up to some stuff. You can't just put it on your letterhead. And and it's, it's, it's been important. I think it still has relevance. It's being refreshed at the moment. There's a, there's a, a couple of consultants um, working their way through the district, repeating pretty much what John Cooney and I did all those years ago in the Central Prospects exercise. Not unnecessarily. It's time for a refresh. Um, yeah, it, it, I've, I've lost track of where the question was, but all that stuff seemed to be, to be important then, and it seems to me to be important now. And it's interesting that someone, a consultant and a bit of money in the current council, see it enough to try and refresh it to give it new legs. I'm just wondering if it's a if it's a national thing, or if it's a thing yeah. that needs to be done regionally, locally, as part of the whether we call it a reset or a whatever it is that we're, we're doing, it's, it's not just uh, let's recover and get back to what we were doing, but let's use this as an opportunity to have that kind of, of, of thinking about what we want to be. Yeah, I think it's I think, I think it can be both, but I think it's more authentic and certainly more durable when it's local um, because, it, because those things, those, those, sort of, those things you hold up as, as what's important to you, as a, to us as a community, and the things that you want other people looking at you to recognize about you have to be authentic and reflect real local values and real local views and real local scenery and real local ethnicity 
and and um, you can do that at a national level. Although I think New Zealand is becoming more diverse than it was when I was younger. That I can hear a distinct um, Auckland accent now. I can we can always hear a distinct Southland accent. I think there are different points of view and different viewpoints in the far north and in the deep south, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what that tells me is that if you want an authentic story about a community, it has to be community-based. It, it, it can be too local, you know, where you start to get sections of a community factionalising and being too community. But it can also you can also try and make it too broad. I think there is a national New Zealand identity, and it's becoming stronger. And this recent event, the, the pandemic, and what's gone around it has strengthened that. I think we view ourselves differently now as a nation than we did a year ago. And by and large, I think that's been positive. I think, you know, some things have come to the surface that we might have thought about, but now we know about. But it also emphasises the need for a strong local voice and for strong local identity and for, and for local identities who can carry that story forward. I think that it's shown as a national identity that we can do stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, and that's another story that I tell a lot. I, I mean, I mean, mine, mine is, a, is a settler background. My ancestors arrived here from Scotland. I've been to Scotland and didn't feel at all Scottish, which tells me something. And, and, I, and, and we, I mean, I like to say, and it's a bit trivial, we all arrived on a boat. All of us, metaphorically, virtually arrived on a boat. And people who get onto boats and sail to the far corners of the Pacific or the far corners aren't your, your ordinary, um, unadventurous, I'm happy at home person. They're people who, who, who set out on an adventure. So in our, in our collective gene pool, regardless of our background, regardless of when we arrived here, in our gene pool, there are adventurers. There are people who set out to do brave and dangerous things. And I think that's still evident in how we behave as a nation. We, we have that collective gene pool, regardless of our background. We're all adventurers at heart. We've all got pioneers in our heritage, regardless of where those pioneers set out from. And I think that that's expressed in, the, in how New Zealand behaves and thinks and, and our policy, the politics of the nation, uh, how we respond when things go south, you know, the, the Christchurch events, the earthquakes, the massacre, the, the, that stuff, how, how we responded to those things and respond to those things is deeply embedded in it and where we came from as a nation, wherever we came from individually as a nation. What do you think we can learn from how we've responded to the pandemic maybe just in New Zealand, but maybe wider, for the, the longer-term, larger-scale questions, climate change, social injustice, and so on? Yeah, equality. Um, oh, I, I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't turned my mind so much to that. It's, it's been a bit situational, hasn't it, in the last few months? I mean, I, I mean again, you could say, if, 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 if there's a nation anywhere, pull themselves together and deal sensibly with climate change, it should be us. Just as if there's a nation anywhere who can be wholly sustainable on an energy basis, it should be us. We've got a, we've got a number of natural resources, not least the people who live here, which means that we ought to be able to deal with that stuff nationally. We ought to be able to deal with it as a team of five million. Whether we can, whether whether we can um, unite and make the change that sometimes is going to be uncomfortable, much more uncomfortable than the last six months. I think is a, is a moot question. I, I wouldn't bet on it, but if anyone can, surely we should be able. I mean, I like the idea of New Zealand being, and have always liked, and maybe it's naive and it's simplistic, the idea about New Zealand being a, a sort of laboratory for the world. You know, the, the, we, we, we're far enough away not to be contaminated by what happens you know, across the other side of the Pacific or even the other side of the Tasman. Um, we're, we're cohesive enough, although we overspeak that. There's, there's plenty of things about us that need to be resolved. We're more cohesive than some, maybe the, some Scandinavian countries accepted. And, and we've got an opportunity to be a, a beacon if, if, we have a, if, 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 if we can collectively wish it to be. Whether we can collectively wish it to be, I suppose, is the challenge of the next decade. Isn't it? Maybe the notion of the team of five million will give the New Zealand Inc. a run for its money. Yeah, and and you may have noticed, or you may not, some of your listeners may have noticed that New Zealand tourism is pumping a lot of stuff into the national market at the moment about how attractive New Zealand is as a destination. And you might say, isn't that just isn't that just absolutely counterintuitive and even a bit stupid when no one can travel even if they wanted to? But what they're doing is they're 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 leveraging the current world view about what's happened here in the last few months. They're sending a subliminal message to potential travellers and potential investors 
and and potential migrants about what matters and what has happened in New Zealand. So there's a, it's not about encouraging mass tourism again. It's about sending out a strong message to the rest of the world, leveraging what presumably most people currently think about New Zealand, which, which is that we've done well and we do well and we're a team of five million. And by the way, it's a nice place to be. Let's take Ali Sherlock's version of Ed Sheeran's Perfect. Yeah, good choice. So we have some questions to end the show. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, hey, that's a good one. Um, it, it's oh, it, it's sort of boring in a way, um, and, it, and it may not strike much um, much of a chord with your listeners. But but the the thing that I'm probably most pleased about in the last twelve months, two years that I've been involved with, is the merger of three businesses into one to create what is now Health Central, the medium-sized general practice in Alexandra. There were three 
separate general practices, three separate doctors or doctor teams working in the same building. And we talked for years about being one and not three. And on the 1st of April last year, we launched um, what's what's called Health Central, um, a, as I say, a medium-sized New Zealand general practice. And, and that could have, I mean, people that are in custom, that, that, that know this sort of stuff will know that that's a highly risky enterprise, that putting three, putting together three idiosyncratic, strongly opinionated <laughs> professional teams into one successful profession is, is, is just, there's rocks everywhere. You, 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 you need an icebreaker to do it. And, and we did it with some success. And, and, and there, of course, it was a team effort. There, are, there wasn't me by any means. But I sort of defaulted to having to make the, having, even that's exaggerating, influencing the big decisions. Uh, do we do it? Why do we do it? What are the benefits of doing it? How do we know whether it's going to work or not? How will we know whether it's working or not? And we did it and it worked and everyone's much happier than that, that we are where we now than we were then. So if, if, I guess on my radar, looking for hot spots, that would be that would be one of the hot spots. We pulled that off, and 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 without much in the way of casualties, and we now have a viable general practice that's doing really well and will do good stuff. When previously we were all struggling a bit, I think they'd all agree with me to say that. So that's one thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, negotiating the lockdown, not not having an insurrection in the household of two. Uh, was that, was a, I mean, we're learning to rub together more than we were accustomed to. We're senior citizens. We've lived together a long time, but never quite like that. And we've often, most of our lives have been lived outside the house, and suddenly most of our lives are being lived inside the house. And you might think that's a simple thing, but in fact, and the, the more the more hidebound you get, the more difficult that is. So that was another highlight, I guess, getting through the lockdown without this. We walked a lot more. We communicate with the extended family much more. We are probably happier in our collective skin skins than than we were before. We've learned not to have um, more than one glass of wine at lunchtime, and we never would have before. No, so it's I guess the, the navigating the lockdown has been. I mean, and we've all experienced that. But but it, it's, it's it's such an individual thing, isn't it? Every family, every household has experienced it differently. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people yeah. doing good work. So you're on our team. What is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, we, none of us like to blow our own trumpets. I mean, I, I, my superpower years are behind me. I, I think I'm, a, I'm a, an extinct superpower if ever, if, ever, if ever I was one. But I think that, that, that I mean, I, I, quite often in local governments and local government, people look at you and say, what the hell are you doing that for? And why do you bother? And what's in it for you? And and of course it's a mixture of things with everyone, but I think it's 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 a sort of the the there's something in some people's genes that compels them to to get involved in things, and it's the sort of accountability gene. Somehow it's, you've got to provide the answer when no one else seems able to or wants to. So do you consider yourself to be an activist? In the past tense, but yes. I mean, actually, a, a, a local government um, chief executive called me that in a meeting once years ago, and I and, it, and it, I thought about it all the way home. Because it hadn't occurred to me that I was or might be. And he said something about you know, activist mayor, and I thought he's talking about me. So I had to, so I had to sort of almost almost deconstruct that. You know, what does he mean by activist, and, and what have I done that's made him label me such? But yeah, I probably was. I mean, I I I had a lot of time for what the Americans call the bully pulpit, which which is if, if you're in a position of local or any sort of local profile, you can say and do things that others can't. Simply because of where you are, not who you are, but where you and, and unconsciously in the beginning and much more consciously towards the end, I used that opportunity. So the things I point to that I'm most pleased about having achieved in my local government career, career occurred outside the mayor's office, not inside the mayor's office. They, they occurred in spite of the council, not because of the council. And if that's a definition of an activist, then I was. <laughs> and, I, and in my bones, I probably still So what challenge are you looking forward to? Actually, getting into my workshop. Um, introspective. Back to I made a living making furniture in Wales, and the um, and 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 all my life since I thought one day I'm going to dust off that machinery and drag out that stack of wood and sharpen up my planes and and, and get back to the artisanry. That I mean, I I can spend a day in a workshop and the day is just gone. No recognition of it. You know, <laughs> just, it just and and you can't, I can't say that about anything else that I do. So my my, my goal. One of my goals is to spend more time doing that and less time in front of this bloody great screen. 
And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, chill. Don't listen to the don't listen to the idiots with conspiracy theories as entrancing as they might seem. Um, we can still trust we can still trust the voice of reason. We can still trust trust the voice of science. We can still trust our own common sense. So if, if, if in the next few weeks and months, as we work our way out of this virus thing, stick to your common sense. Listen to the voices that you that that, that you can trust, and don't listen to the siren voice from off stage saying ah, but. Thank you for that. Moira. Uh, Malcolm, I have to say I disagree with you about you being a an expired superpower. Um, <laughs> I I think you're amazing. And I look at, you know, I remember through my master's journey, I could not have got through it if it wasn't for you. You are so good at encouraging and inspiring and, and helping people to put their best foot forward. And uh, I think that you are absolutely super. And I'm really glad to know you, actually. Thank you very much. I'm not sure it's true, but thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Good on you guys. All strength to your arm. We're going out to Brendan Kavanagh, known as Dr. K, the Lockdown Blues. Conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Moira Karatai in Fakatani, and we were joined today by Malcolm McPherson in Alexandra. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.